So there are two main things that I've told my children that they are not allowed to do, two rules in our household. The number one rule is that my children are not allowed to learn to play the violin. I have told them under no circumstances, well, only under one circumstance, which would be my profound deafness, would they be allowed to learn to play the violin. I simply think that the practice would violate my basic human rights. And thankfully, I noticed that at a recent school concert, it seems we've outsourced the learning of the violin en masse to China. There is a second, much more serious rule, which is under no circumstances are they allowed to grow up to become lawyers. I am very serious about this. I've told each of them and sat them down and had the talk. They are not allowed to become a lawyer. I would rather they became a criminal, because at least criminals are honest about how they make their living. I've spent all week working with lawyers. And I've had to spend the whole week reading every European Court of Justice ruling since January of this year uh, through until today which means I haven't had much trouble sleeping this week, sometimes three or four times a day. But it's absolutely confirmed that I would hate to think that my one contribution to society could be seen that I had bred three more lawyers. Actually, I should have checked. There's something I'm supposed to ask at the beginning of this sermon. Do we have any lawyers uh, in the congregation this morning? Somebody tentatively raise their hand. It's very, very simple. The entire rest of this sermon tips on the balance of whether we have a lawyer. We have a lawyer in our midst? Your son is a lawyer. That's fine. Don't tell him what we're saying. No, actually, you'll see that we love lawyers, but we have a trouble with some of the, some of the laws and things they say. We don't have any lawyers present this morning because, as we all know, uh, all the lawyers worship at All Saints. Uh, which, in fact, has now had to be officially legally renamed Mostly Saints uh, and some lawyers. Now, I have to be honest now to lawyers to say that actually uh, my wife and I are very good friends with a very honest, very hard-working uh, lady who is a local solicitor who does an incredible amount of work uh, amongst needy and older folk uh, in this village and the wider community who is a lawyer and who worships at All Saints. So I have to say that it is, in fact, All Saints that we should name it, uh, and in fact, we should put in brackets after that, a place where miracles are seen to happen. You see, the thing about lawyers is this. They're very good with words. They'll never use one short, simple word where a hundred complicated words will do. They have that in common with preachers, I suppose. And so I've spent all week wrestling with language, language which was designed to give us exactly what the law intended, but simply to me rendered it opaque. Let me give you a simple example. This is an orange. I'm a big fan of oranges, so I took this from home this morning. It's mine. I like oranges very much, but I have two of them with me. So I'm going to give this one to Charles, if that's all right. I'll give you this orange. What could be simpler than that? Well, unfortunately, in my last meeting on Friday with the lawyers, I mentioned I was giving Charles an orange, and they said uh, that really I should give him this contract uh, that goes with it. So, Charles, if you could just put your initials next to the purple flag. Uh, I've signed here. If you could sign there and get somebody in the congregation to witness by the green flag, that would be great. It's all standard stuff. You don't, if you can't read this print, it's quite small. Don't worry about it. It's completely standard. It will appear uh, on the screen for the rest of us. You see, in the hands of the lawyers... This simple transaction becomes significantly more complicated. It goes something like this. 
I hereby give, grant, and convey to you and to all your heirs and assigns all my interests, rights, titles, and claims of and in this said orange, together with all and any of its rind, skin, juice, pulp, and pits, and seeds, and all rights and advantages therein, with full power to bite, cut, suck, or otherwise eat, consume, or cause to be used, the orange or transfer, assign, or dispose to any third party the said orange, with or without its rind, skin, juice, pulp, seeds, or pits, together with any rights which may arise as a consequence of said orange, subject to any amendments subsequently drawn up or introduced into this agreement. It's all basic stuff. It sounds like the language of Sir Humphrey from Yes Minister, and he used legal language to cloak his meaning, but that's the exact opposite of what the law intends. The whole point of lawyers is to render the detail absolutely clear, which is why there's so much more. All future liability arising from the recipient's use, inability to use, storage or disposal of this orange shall thereafter rest upon the recipient as their sole liability. The orange is provided without warranty, expressed or implied, to the fullest extent under UK law, including but not restricted to allergic reaction, toxicity, infection, defect, pest, foreign matter, or disease. You still want? Oh, that's the third one. I'm sorry. No, you're right. The second paragraph is this. Furthermore, I warrant that I possess the full title and sole authority to transfer the aforementioned orange. No other interest, claim, lien, covenant, liability, or loan exists that restricts the perpetual grant of said title or binds the recipient to any further or future liability, schedule of charges, duty, debt, or responsibility to any first or third party, the date of assignment and transfer of the article stated hereon shall be deemed to be the date of this contract and to duly authorize and bind both parties henceforth. Both parties confirm their competence and authority to enter into said contract and do so by virtue of their own free will without payment or further obligation pecuniary or implied. This is why lawyers get 500 pounds an hour. You couldn't pay me enough to possibly read this or write this day after day after day because, as you can tell, yes, there's more. All future liability arising from the recipient's use and ability to use storage or dispose of this orange shall hereafter rest upon the recipient as their sole liability. The orange is provided without warranty, expressed or implied, to the fullest extent under UK law, including but not restricted to allergic reaction, toxicity, infection, defect, pest, foreign matter, or disease. Do you still want the orange, Charles? Uh, the recipient, could you sign there an initial at the top? That'd be great. The recipient must transport, consume, and dispose of the orange according to UK, EU, and international regulations regarding the handling, transit, disposal, consumption, and preparation of such fruits as exist or are instituted or may come into force or effect during the recipient's tenure as sole owner of the aforementioned citrus article. The recipient's right to exchange or export the orange in whole or in part outside the EU are subject to prevailing EU agricultural controls, restrictions, and regulations resting upon the recipient. All of these words try to capture every possible aspect of just this simple transaction where I gave my orange to Charles. All of those words intend to leave nothing out, no circumstance uh, uncovered, no stone unturned, except that the lawyers have left out everything that matters most. There's nothing in all of these 600 words that says anything about the heart of the person giving the orange the intention or the reason why I gave it to Charles in the first place. And there's nothing in all of these words that talks about Charles's joy in receiving the orange. You see, all that the lawyers can do is to capture the letter of the law. They can't capture the spirit or the intent of the person behind the law. But the problem is that when the spirit is missing, when the intent of the author of the law is lost, then it's very easy to distort the law. Let me give you a much better example than an orange. Have you seen on the news this week that certain big US companies, Amazon and Google, etc., have been paying far less tax than they should do. The law says that they should be paying 23% tax. Google has been paying 1.5%, and Amazon has been paying 0.1%. And that's a perfect example, because 
All the companies have to do, and you might want to write this down because it will save you some money, is you have to set up two separate companies in Ireland. Let's call them Company A and Company B. Both are Irish companies, but Company B moves its headquarters to the Cayman Islands because under Irish tax law, you don't have to pay tax in Ireland if your headquarters and most of your staff are overseas in a foreign territory, and you don't have to pay tax in the Cayman Islands. Then you take all of your U.S. intellectual property and you move it into Company B in the Cayman Islands. Are you following this? It's very simple. Company A buys all the shares in Company B, but Company A, which is still in Dublin, takes all the profits from all of your operations in the whole of the EU, which is legal under EU law. You can just transfer it free to Ireland. But then Company B charges Company A for all of the use of their intellectual property, exactly the same amount of money as Company A just made in profits. Thus, Company A, which can claim against tax all of those fees from Company B, makes no or very little profit and pays hardly any tax. And Company B in the Cayman Islands, which has no corporate tax, has all of that money. Have you written that down? Does anybody think they might want to use that in this coming week? I guess all the tax cheats go to All Saints as well. It explains why the lawyers go there. What matters is this. The MPs described this week Google and Amazon as immoral and evil because they dodged the requirement upon them to pay tax. But Eric Schmidt, Google's executive chairman, claims simply this, that Google fully complies with the law. What he means is that you can ignore the intent or the spirit of the law as long as you obey every letter of the law. Today is Pentecost, the day that we celebrate in the Christian church the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's an exciting and a wonderful day. We call it the birthday of the church, but it's a birthday that the church shares with a separate Jewish celebration. It's also the birthday of the law. And so today we're looking at the reason why the law and the Spirit were given on the same day, both on this feast of Pentecost. You see, There are three major Jewish festivals. Each of them is tied in with agriculture, and each of them is tied in with a blessing that God had poured out on the people of Israel that they wanted to remember. So each of these festivals, the Jews would remember God's current provision for them in the harvest, in the now. And they would look back to the way that God had taken care of them and supported them in the past. And using those two blessings, they would look forward to how he would be faithful to them with their future hope and their future promise. The first of those three festivals was Passover. That was the beginning of the first, the barley harvest. And also it was the time when the Jews remembered being saved from Israel. They literally remembered their salvation from slavery. And of course, we now know from the Christian church that that Old Testament and Old Covenant found its fulfillment in Christ at Passover, where he became our Passover lamb for us, where that old covenant was perfected by the new covenant, where we were saved not just from Egypt, but from slavery of sin and death. And then for 50 days after Passover, that's where the penta, the 50 in Pentecost, comes from. The Jews would remember their journey out of Egypt and towards Mount Sinai where the law was given. In those 50 days, they turned their backs on a life of slavery to Egypt and towards the revelation of the law that was to come to their adoption as the people of God, as servants of God. And for those 50 days, their focus would be on the law. 
Their focus would be on anticipation of all that God would pour out. It would be of abandoning themselves and preparing themselves to accept the law, to be ready for that revelation that they knew was coming. They would spiritually reenact their ancestors' journey. It was a chance to leave whatever was their individual Egypt, whatever narrow part may hold us back, and travel to a place where we too can be open and receptive to whatever revelation awaits us at Pentecost. A time to wait and remember our dependence on God. And it was into this period, this period of waiting, known as the counting of the Omer, that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus sent his disciples, as he ascended into heaven, to wait, literally to wait on God, to anticipate the gift and power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Pentecost was one of those three major uh, festivals which called upon all Jewish males over the age of 20 to return to Jerusalem. And so they would not have been that surprised when, just before he ascended, Jesus gave them an instruction to do exactly that, to go to Jerusalem and wait in anticipation of the outpouring of the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, this year, Pentecost was to come in a fuller way to reveal not just the law of God, but his glory and grace. At Pentecost, this celebration of the law was central to Jewish life. I've joked about lawyers, but you're only English because of the law. You only have your rights and responsibilities because of the law. So to the Jewish people, the law was precious and the law law was special. I always rebelled against wearing a school uniform because I'm like that. But to the Jews, the law was their school uniform. It told them what to wear. It set them apart from other nations. It was their diet book because it told them what to eat, when to eat it, and how to eat it. It told them how to wash. It was their worship book. It told them how to lift their praise to God, when they should worship, how they should pray. It was central to every aspect of their Jewish nature. What they received at Pentecost was not just a written set of rules, but a revelation of their identity as the chosen people of God. And more than that, through that revelation, it showed them the heart and spirit and intent of that God. But after 1,600 years, the 613 laws of Moses in the Torah had multiplied. They'd become small print. They'd become the letter of the law. Instead of 613 laws, 365, one for every day of the year, thou shalt nots, and 248 thou shalts, there were thousands and thousands of laws that bound their hearts and their lives more and more to the letter of the law and less and less to the giver of that law. So much so that at the time of Jesus, many of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had lost sight completely of the God revealed through that gift of the law and focused only on the words themselves. All they could see was the letter of the law, not the intent, not the heart, not the giver of the law. Time and time again, the Pharisees met God. They came face to face with Jesus Christ, but buried in their texts and unable to lift their hearts and minds from the letter of the law, they did not recognize God when they came face-to-face with him. They were blinded by the same law that had been intended to reveal the will and the mind of God. The disciples came to Jesus, and under all this burden of the law, they said, Jesus, we can't possibly keep all these commandments. We're just too tired. It's just too difficult. Just tell us the main ones. Give us the top one or two. Give us the top five. This is Matthew 22. And the disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus corrects them. 
And he points them away from the letter of the law and back towards the heart. He says, stop following the rules and follow instead the ruler. Matthew 22, verse 36. This is the disciples speaking first. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Listen to what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say that the Ten Commandments were the Ten Suggestions. He doesn't say that the 613 rules don't apply, only these two. Ignore the other 611. What he says is that these two reveal the intent, the heart, and the purpose of God. If you can master and keep these two rules, the other 611 will happen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. If we can just get these two commandments into our hearts, Jesus will invite us to lift our eyes from the letter of the law to the giver of the law, to stop following the rules and follow the ruler. That's where our Old Testament reading this morning comes from. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and onwards, we reread, and this is God speaking to you this morning. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, in that upper room, on the birthday of the law and the birthday of the church, as the Holy Spirit and grace poured out in that place, the disciples unbound their hearts from the letter of the law, and received by grace new hearts of flesh shaped by the law. Hearts that Psalm 40 promises us, and I love this, delight in God and desire to do his will. They received power, not words. In Acts 1 that we read just now, Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, the law tells us how to live, but it doesn't give us the power to live the way that God intends. The law can take us so far, but we need the Holy Spirit to really live the life that God intends for us. It works like this. How many of you have got shelf after shelf at home groaning under the weights of books about dieting? How many of you have spent money you didn't really have to spare on books about personal finance? How many of you have bought books on self-confidence that didn't really change you, but you're too shy to take them back? We have library after library, book after book, that have laws in them, that have rules in them, that tell us what to do, but don't give us the power and authority. The Bible is different. The Holy Spirit is different, because it comes not just with authority, not just with rules, but with power. It comes to give us that promised new heart that God longs to put inside us. It doesn't just give us rules. It gives us a heart that delights in him, that desires to do his will and power by his spirit to live the life he calls us to. That Holy Spirit is not just for the super spiritual few. It's not just for the preacher. It's not just for the person playing the organ. It's not just for Ray Tiju. It's for everybody in the church, not just the spiritual few. 
there's a certainty about it that we lose. We come to Pentecost and we say, I wonder if something will happen. That's wrong. Something is happening. God is in this place. His Holy Spirit and his grace are moving in this place today. Not because I claim it, but because he promised it. God promises you today, this morning, a new heart. Not bound by the law. The power of Pentecost comes and falls in this place. Not when we look around for signs and symbols and wonders happening. Not when we look at each other and wonder, I wonder if somebody's going to do something. There's a pressure we put on ourselves on on Pentecost services. What's going to happen in the church? I wonder, I wonder. And we wait for it to happen in other people, and that's wrong. Because the power of Pentecost doesn't come when we look around us. And sometimes at Pentecost, we're tempted to look up and say, something might happen somewhere else. I'm not really sure where, but somewhere spiritual. Somewhere other than us. Somewhere super spiritual, somewhere up there. And I love that bit from Acts chapter 1, where the angels turn up and tell the disciples to stop looking in the sky. Because Jesus isn't up there. He's in here. He's in the heart of the person sitting next to you. That's his promise today and this morning, that the power of Pentecost will come to you not when you look up, not when you look around, but when you look inside. When you empty your heart of everything that holds you back, examine it and then offer it fully to God. You see, during Pentecost, this agricultural bit was happening everywhere. It was the end of the early, the barley harvest, and the beginning of the grain harvest. So all over Jerusalem, in the windiest spots of the city, they would make these threshing floors. What happens when you thresh the barley or the wheat is this. You take everything that you have, both the husk, which is the the brittle bit that you can't eat, and the tares, which are the small wheats and the small bits of foreign weeds, sorry, and the small bits of foreign matter, along with the grain that you want, and you have to throw all of it up into the air. See, there's nothing the farmer can do to get down on their hands and knees and remove everything. There's just too much of it. It's impossible. They have to do it using the power of the wind. What they do is they have to throw it all, everything, the good and the bad, into the wind. And what happens is this. When the wind blows strongly enough, everything which is too light blows to one side and gathers in a pile and is burnt away, the rubbish. But what falls back to the ground is clean, pure grain, which you can bake, which you can eat. It's not good enough to pick through it and just try to throw the bits you think the wind wants into the air, because they'll fall back into the rubbish on the ground. And it's not possible to pick up the rubbish and just throw that into the air. You have to throw it all into the air, good and bad, and let the wind sift it. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2 in that upper room. It weren't some special, special effects that happened. The wind blew in the back door and out the front. And it would have made no difference at all unless they had thrown everything into the wind and let God sift their hearts, all of it. This morning as we pray at the end of this, I pray that you will throw everything in your heart into the breeze that blows in this place. Because the spirit and the power and the grace of God can blow in that door and out the other one unless we allow it to change us, unless we claim that power. To do that, you have to empty yourself of everything and throw it to the wind. Let him sift it. And then take what he sees to be rubbish and it's burned forever, gone. That same spirit, that same power is here today, this morning, longing to peel away the binds of this small print, this legalism, 
and allow instead God to purify and claim and shape our hearts from a, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Don't take my word for it. Don't try to earn it or to wait until you feel worthy of it. Claim it because it's his promise. Claim it because his grace and mercy longs to wash over you, to pour into you. Claim it because there's stuff that God wants you to let go of. Claim it because the promised power of the Spirit is blowing in this place and the refining fire is waiting to burn the rubbish. Surrender to the wind and fire these symbols of his saving grace. Let that grace fill you and surround you. Let it literally blow you away. For in Acts 1, we read, John baptized with water, but in a few days, in 10 days, as it happened, on Pentecost, on the birthday of the law, on the birthday of the church, his Holy Spirit came in that room and blew the doors off. For John baptized with water, but today you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I've said a lot of words this morning, and I'm at risk, therefore, of becoming a lawyer. So I want to end with a poem, because there's nothing more different uh, than law and poetry. Law captures absolutely all of the dry detail, but none of the heart. Whereas poetry is the exact opposite. We ignore some of the details, but we capture the passion and the power and the heart. I always try to be accurate, and I've looked in a dozen places and seen a dozen different people who wrote this poem. So I can't tell you exactly who the author is. I think the very earliest version might have been John Bunyan, but I'm not entirely sure. But I can tell you this. These words were not written by a lawyer. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better hope the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings.